I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Daniel Hernandez. Mr. Hernandez is a former staff writer of the Los Angeles Times and the LA Weekly. He blogs at Intersections. His work has been featured in several magazines, online and radio outlets. Mr. Hernandez is currently working on a book for Scribner about youth and culture in Mexico City. We're very happy to have tonight Daniel Hernandez. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gregory, and the staff of Socalo. Um, it really is an honor to be here. Um, I'm very humbled, actually, to be here. I think it's really cool, and uh, I'm grateful for all of you to show up. First, I kind of wanted to just uh, address why I moved to Mexico City, because that's kind of the question that I get the most um, as I've been here. Um, I was here in Los Angeles, and I was working as a journalist, and I was given an incredible opportunity to to go to Mexico City, which is a city that has kind of always drawn, been a magnet, I think, for, for my attention and, and, and for my interests and curiosities. And um, so, I, so I went, I immediately kind of decided to hit the ground running and um, explore and immerse myself in the culture as much as I could. And for me, that meant, given that um, I, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a journalist, that I wouldn't kind of approach it as, um, as an academic would, or purely as a journalist would, but as an observer, and um, really kind of delve as much as I could and participate. So for me, that meant to go to every possible event that I possibly could every day. And that meant every party, every concert, <laughs> every rally, uh, every religious tradition, ceremony, ritual, every meeting, every talk, any kind of invitation that I received, I would go until I could physically no longer, right? And at night, I would come home or in the morning, wake up and just write as much as possible and just kind of let whatever came through in the writing eventually appear somehow on the blog in some form. So I would take an idea or an image or an interview or a contact and blog it. And that became kind of the first draft of, of what I was there to, to work on. I would collect newspapers, magazines, books, um, read three or four newspapers a day from the more establishment, kind of conservative paper, to the more left-wing, to the more sensationalist, bloody, gory paper that is available. And all of that, I think I, I began to absorb um, and sort of see certain trends and ideas emerge from um, being exposed to that much information and to that much kind of experience. And so I was asked, how does Mexico survive? I would say that the, that the, that the, that the, the primary answer to that is that it's always been a survivalist kind of society. It has always been a society that has um, employed improvisation and um, adapting um, to whatever kind of challenges are thrown at its people. You know, you could say that that goes all the way back to uh, pre-Hispanic times, right? Whenever there were civilizations in Mexico that would, um, that would meet um, in war. One would vanquish the other, and then um, the vanquished would have to some way inter either integrate themselves or um, be, be victimized, right? And we all know sort of that the, that the main moment of, 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 of meeting was the arrival of the Spanish. And that was also a huge uh, moment 
of course, of, of violence and of conquest, but also of integration and adapting. And so many Indian women, um, according to what I've read and, and all the kind of histories and stuff that I've, that I've tried to absorb and have been exposed to, willingly went right with the conquistadors and found Spanish mates. Why? Because that is a strategy of survival, right? So, but let's fast forward to today because I've been there since November 2007 and I'd spent a brief summer there right after college. And like I said earlier, I went with the intent to really kind of dive in and immerse myself and go to as many things as I could. Unlike, I think, in the United States, the inequalities and the kind of social injustices that are apparent in all kinds of societies in Mexico, they're, they're right in your face. They're really stark. And they're, um, it's, 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 it's just very intense. It's very, very intense to be exposed to that kind of wealth and um, extreme decadence that exists among the small elites of Mexico and the kind of total abject poverty that exists both in the urban centers and also in, in rural parts of the country. You know, Mexico is still a developing country. There are still many places in Mexico that don't have electricity, don't have running water, don't have access to basic health care and education. And living in a place and kind of knowing that and seeing aspects of that on a day-to-day -day basis is just very, very striking. And it's hard to, to look away from. And I think that's one of the primary things. I, I, wrote, a few, um, I wrote a few general themes down. And I know if there are probably some historians or specialists in this audience. And um, so if I say anything too generalizing, you know, let's, I'd be glad to hear um, perspectives and in, in questions. So I would say that the, one of the main problems are, are economic, right? The global economic crisis has uh, really affected Mexico officially. You read the reports of uh, unemployment and the economy contracting and all kinds of instability. Empl unemployment is on the rise. The economy is contracting. It is unstable. Um, but you really don't feel it the way you do here. I've never, just in these past few weeks in L.A., I've never met so many people who just casually say that they're now unemployed or were recently laid off. In Mexico, people live their whole lives unemployed and perpetually laid off. I mean, it's not, it's not something rare to meet someone who doesn't have a job, but they find a way. They, they find a way to eke out a living. And again, that's an element of the, the, the idea of improvisation. And so many millions of people participate in the underground economy that is selling stuff on the streets. You know, we can look at street vendors and say, oh, that's really quaint or it's very cool that they sell something on the streets. But that's really, a, that's an economic victim. You know, that's someone who doesn't have a job and who has to, has to find something to sell on the streets. And they pay their taxes to whatever gangs or mafias or kind of organizations assign spaces on the streets, okay? Um, so there's that. There's the informal economy. And that also includes the trafficking of narcotics and of weapons and of animals, stuff like that. And there are some parts in Mexico City, actually very, very openly, that you can get really anything you want. A big reason for this, of course, is NAFTA, implemented in 1994. I was 13. I didn't understand it at the time when it happened. But uh, basically, that decimated the agricultural economy NAFTA for um, a lot of farmers, a lot of small farmers. And they were forced to compete um, 
with agricultural goods from the US. Um, and they failed, right? Um, so there's that. There's also um, the health and environmental challenges that, I've, that I would identify. The H1A, H1N1, the swine flu, the virus, was a huge public health crisis. And when that emerged, I would say that Mexico was not prepared to handle the magnitude of it. I think, now in hindsight, I think initially I was kind of critical of the government response, but I would say in hindsight, they, um, they did as best they could given the circumstances. This was a virus that was spreading so rapidly in a densely urbanized area. And uh, they basically shut down the city. And that was how we managed, I think, to prevent it from infecting a lot more people. Now, of course, you know, society, we get, we get pandemics all the time as a, as a planet. So now it's spread, of course. But um, besides, I would say, swine flu, uh, obesity is a major issue. We all know, many of us here know that um, Mexico is the second most obese country after the U.S. Um, <laughs> not what that says. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could trace that. I think you could trace that also back to NAFTA and the arrival of so much junk food from, from north of the border. Um, and you, you do see it, you know. You do see people who would, instead of going to a market to buy a 35-vessel meal, would rather go to a McDonald's or a Burger King because that's American, that's better, that's, it, it gives you status. HIV and AIDS, is, of course, is a big issue as well. And um, there are all these stigmas um, associated with that. A lot of people, a lot of immigrants who go to the United States and return to Mexico often bring um, that virus with them and um, spread it among their partners in Mexico. So that's a big, big issue as well. Um, education, which I think is also connected to um, health, uh, is a problem. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the, the president right now has tried to sort of promote the idea of updating the educational system, but it's a huge challenge because of um, just the way the, the infrastructure, um, the money that's available, and the political implications, like everything, right? The environment, I think, is a huge issue, and that's, not, that's something that we don't hear about enough, I think, in the U.S. The contamination of natural resources is, is pretty uh, extreme and severe, and there's, there isn't enough consciousness, I don't think, in Mexico about environmental issues and concerns. We sense it every day in Mexico City um, because it's, it's very polluted, and they keep telling me it's not as polluted as it was before, but I just don't believe them. I can't. It's too intense. I feel it every day. I look up at the sky and I just can't fathom the amount of toxins that are being recycled through our lungs, um, the amount of manufacturing that exists there, the amount of stagnant cars and traffic is just, it's nuts. It's really nuts. And uh, the worst time for um, the pollution, just so you know if you plan on going, is uh, December, January, February, the winter, because that's when it's drier there's less rain. And in the summer, there's, we have a rainy season. So it rains almost basically once a day, you know. So go in the summer. Uh, so there's that. And uh, the political disorder, you know, now such a crazy moment in Mexico. We're going to have elections on July 5th. And these are the midterm elections. So it's really, you know, um, uh, a, a test of confidence on um, the, the current party in power, which is PAN, the, the conservative party. Um, and for 70 years, of course, if you know the basic history of Mexico, it was run since the revolution by the PRI, 
the institutional revolutionary party, the ultimate oxymoron, the perfect dictatorship. And this was a party that placated all the segments of the political class and really ruled Mexico with an iron fist. The highest expression of that was the massacre of students in Tlatelolco in 1968, people that I consider martyrs. On my first visit to Mexico, this was the first place that I went just because I wanted to see this site and pay homage to um, the people who died there. There was a dirty war in the 70s, and there was just one party, one, one, one order that was in control, and the presidency was handed down person to person, handpicked. There were elections, but there weren't really. They finally had an election in 2000, and this brought on a plurality, different parties, different agendas, different ideologies, different political expressions. Right now, we have the PAN, the PRI, the PRD, which was a branch of the PRI, the party that you will identify on TV in yellow. It's so crazy seeing Mexican political ads on TV in Los Angeles. It is really nuts. But I've been watching the ads here, like back where I live. Um, so there's PRD, and they're considered more leftists. There's a Green Party, which has a death penalty platform. Um, <laughs> And there's other parties that kind of fit in between those spaces. What does this mean? Democracy is good, right? You know, more options. What I see it as is total disorder, total headlessness, madness. No one really is in control because there is so much gamemanship between the parties to collect majorities, pluralities, to get legislation passed. And uh, everyone runs on a... Um, if you think politics here is nuts, I mean, you really should try and try and understand the political situation there because there is so much gamemanship, like I said, so much um, quid pro quo, you know, that kind of attitude, like, well, we'll help you out with this, you help us out with that. Well, really, we, we all end up losing. So we're going to see, I think, in a f next week, next Sunday, um, just how, um, just what's going to happen. I think the, the, the projections are telling us that the BRI is going to come back in a major way. And that is going to set us up for the PRI coming back into the presidency in 2012. And the, and the person who's been identified as the contender for that post is the, pres, the, the governor of the state of Mexico. He's a young, kind of handsome guy. He's dating a model actress. And he is, uh, he is um, he's the governor of the state that surrounds on three sides the federal district, like the DC, the Mexico City. So he has a big constituency. And uh, he has a big... He has a, there's a big push. There's going to be a big push for them. Some people say the PRI is new. They're a new PRI. There's a new leadership. The dinosaurs have died off. And some people are really freaked out that the idea that this party that caused so much suffering and had such a um, strong hold on society could potentially return to power. That's, that's another challenge that we face. Um, and I think that also leads to um, loss of credibility for the institutions. The current president, Felipe Calderón, he came in in like a really contested election. People still say he's not the president. He's the illegitimate. He's not my president. And this, the guy who lost to him, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, I, I covered his campaign the last few days of it. He still believes that he's a legitimate president and that the, and that the presidency was robbed from him. And so he made this, a friend of his made this documentary, Fraude, Fraud, about what happened to him in that whole situation. That, I know that the U.S. Uh, media, foreign media, sort of ignores Andres Manuel López Obrador. He's, he's a kind of a caricature. He went a little crazy. He put on his own sash. He's the president. But um, I think they need to keep paying attention to him because he still manages to motivate 
and uh, get a lot of people moving. And he still has a lot of support. And so he's going to be a force to, to contend with in the, in the sense that people now don't have this reverence for the presidency that there was before. You know, it's now okay to mock, really criticize the institutions. Um, so what are the strategies of survival? And this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm writing about in my manuscript. Um, tribalism, I think, is what I'm concentrating on most. And that is the idea that people, in the face of so much madness and, and challenges and tensions, find their little communities, find their little nodes. You know, you're into, you're into punk rock? Well, you're a punk. And you're going to dress a punk head to toe. You're going to live like a punk. You're going to think like a punk. You're going to read punk. You hang out with punks. You are into, let's say, dogs. You're going to be in a dog club and walk your dog every day and read dog magazines. And it's everything from motorcycles to boxing to soccer to American baseball um, and all the different cultural expressions that I concentrate on, goths, uh, emos, punks, um, skaters, hip-hop. Rasta, reggae, there's a huge element of that. So the tribes are really interesting, and, and, it, and, and I think that um, they allow people, they give people stability, they give people a sense of community. Now that the idea of a, a national community is under so much duress, right? Now people really revert and, and go into, their, and, into these little tribes that they identify and they create. One of the first things I went to Mexico, one of the first things I did when I went to Mexico um, in this long term was um, go bowling. And I'm like, what am I doing bowling? But I was hanging out with some kids who were just really into bowling and they liked going to the bowling alley and getting hamburgers and like chicken wings or whatever and like bowl. So the other one is resistance. And what is the biggest expression of that? The Zapatista uprising of 1994. That is a movement that is still continuing. It has attempted to adapt. It has um, mainstreamized, some people say, the second Campania, Subcomandante Marcos, he's the face of it. But I think uh, you know, a lot of people find it really easy to dismiss the Zapatistas today, but that's a movement that is still sustained. There is still a region of Chiapas that is autonomous and that you cannot enter without permission of the Zapatistas. And the Zapatistas are run collectively, right? There are women who are leaders and, and these are indigenous, this is an indigenous system that has been created in resistance to the status quo, saying we, we, we're not a part of that, we don't accept that. I think you know that although they've had missteps and they've, and they've come under critique, I think that Zapatistas deserve admiration for at least kind of attempting to make an alternative system in, in, in this larger one, right? And that also, you know, they're not the only ones. There are leftist movements at the universities that are really vibrant and really identify with trajectories in South America and in Europe of Trotskyism, of, of um, communism, and of traditional Marxism that, that you don't see as strong or as vibrant here in the U.S. And I was really, um, I was really impressed by that. I went on a, on a, on a brigada, on a, on a brigade, with like young kids from UNAM, the National University, who identified or, as an organization as Trotskyists. But among them, there were so many different kind of ideologies, and I interviewed every single one. I spent you know, 10 days going with them to a small ejido, a village in Chiapas. And um, we just went to like help out to start a pavement of the only road that was in the town. And we did a, um, a survey, a demographic survey. The demographic students did a demographic survey. The dental students offered free dental care round the clock 
for, for, for people who had never in their life seen a dentist. Um, the engineering students attempted to start a community radio station where they could project news. And this is just a group of 50 students in a village of 500 people, but making change, really doing it, again, in resistance to the status quo. And that was a hugely inspiring experience to me. It wasn't with the Zapatistas. It wasn't in Zapatista-controlled territory in Chiapas, but it was in an ejido there where they made coffee. Um, and again, um, they were all suffering because coffee production was down. People were selling their plots. So I think resistance is a strategy. Defiance and abandonment, and we know that in Los Angeles. You know, when you live in this kind of a society, you're going to seek the greatest economic opportunities for your family and for yourself, so you go north. And not just to, um, as we've seen in the past 10 years, not just to Los Angeles and the Southwest and Chicago, which are traditional destinations for Mexican immigration, but now cities have Mexicanized where you're just like, what, Des Moines, Iowa, like Chapel Hill, North Carolina, New York is Mexicanizing, they say. So that's a huge shift that so much, so many Mexicans have sought economic opportunities in the U.S. And that reflects poorly on Mexico. It really does. Cause, and, and people have an ambivalence towards that. Because on the one hand, they say, those are our paisanos. They keep being Mexicans. Good for them. They took that incredible journey, that incredible track, all that risk, face all that, that discrimination in the United States. There were economic refugees. But man, they also left. And they left us here. And we have to have to deal with this a lot, too. So there's ambivalence there. Abandonment also means people going to Canada people going to other countries where it's easier to get to. And if you're a little wealthier, if you're from the middle class, you go and do college in Europe or the United States, or you go um, you know, to Canada or somewhere else. So there's that issue. Um, and the other, I think, would be like decadence. Everyone knows Mexicans love to party, right? But they just take the party to the extreme. Like I've never seen ever in California. And I'm, this is a, you know, this is a, pseudo Mexican state it has the, it were, it was once part of that 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 empire but the partying down there is just extreme it's this thing that just goes on and on weddings last for days a party that just kind of happened won't finish till five o'clock the next afternoon you know there's this you know and there there are cool things about that you know Ruben Martinez talked wrote about once how that's an expression of the tension between the flesh and the church and that Catholic guilt and and just living in that in-between space and just wanting to like make some salsa, you know, make some energy. And uh, it's, it's amazing, it's amazing. And, and the hospitality and the warmth, but it also has a dark side. And I would say that dark side is addiction and, and uh, alcoholic, uh, 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 abuse of alcohol and abuse of drugs. That's something that Mexico is trying to deal with because now that it's more difficult to get drugs across the border, they say, uh, more of it stays in Mexico, and you have a new phenomenon of addiction to the narcotics that are destined for the U.S., but in Mexico. And that also includes like really bad drugs, like crystal meth and like this thing, paint solvent. They call it mona. So, um, so many kids, that's the drug of the pobres, the poor drug. And it's the drug of young people. And I see it everywhere. Once you identify it, you're like, oh my God, you see it everywhere. And if you see a kid like this, that means he has a little piece of cloth and he is inhaling paint solvent and their bodies just waste away and they become homeless and, it's, and they become emaciated by it. And uh, it's funny because I went once on, on May Day, which is a, a big holiday, to a ska concert, a ska toquin. And it's all these teenagers and all these ska bands and resistencia and, 
you know, down with the president, down with the government, anarchy, and all the kids are jamming, but they're all like either smoking pot or sniffing this stuff. And I was around it so much, and it was so strong and so in the air, and the kid here was doing it, and the kid here, and the kid in front of me, and I, I got high. I like had to leave. It was so strong that I had to get out of there, and I was like out for like a day. It, it just it cut me out. So that's a big issue, and I think that's a big problem. But there also, you know, it's, there, there's a cultural decadence. There's so much art and culture, and it's the monumentality. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You turn a corner, and there's a statue or a sculpture, and it feels alive, you know? And um, that's why, like I said, I go to so many openings and, and parties and stuff, because you do feel that, man, we're part of something, and this is the work. The party is the job. This is what we're here to do because any minute this could all come crashing down and it's a commitment to the party. It's like, no, this is our, we are committed. Like this is the job. This is what we're here to do. And uh, sometimes I'm just like, how do they do it? Like, I can't take it. I have to like rest, you know, but, but no, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty incredible. So um, it's been an incredible experience and I'm, I um, just feel so fortunate to have been there and, and, to, and to be there. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I frankly, I'm proud of myself because I survived. I have survived Mexico. So I'd like to open it to questions. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jerry Sullivan. Uh, Daniel, I had a question for you. I, I employ young young immigrants from Mexico on occasion, and it always strikes me how quickly they become consumers once they get here. And pretty soon an iPod and nicer clothes and everything mm -hmm. else. And I've gotten to know several of them real well. I know, I've been to their home in Mexico out in the country, and I know that that's not, they haven't come from that sort of area. Mm -hmm. Now with the economy tough, a lot of these guys are going back. And I'm just wondering what you think might, that, what effect that might have with the consumer trained immigrant going back to the, the home village or the home city with, that, with those new habits? That's a good question. Um, that's the American dream, right? Become a consumer. And you've, you've, if, you've, uh, if you return to Mexico and you're, you're, you're wearing this bling and you can afford a truck and you, you bring your mom back, uh, you know, a big flat screen TV or DVD, VCR, whatever, you've achieved the, the American dream. And I think that's how they see it. And there's a really strong consumer culture that exists that is generating in Mexico because, of, because I think of that influence that you're talking about that goes back. And you're right, you do, you do um, I've been in people's domestic spaces, I've been in people's private spaces, and then they might not have like the, cool, like, the nicest house, but everyone has their TV, uh, or a few, and everyone has a, a DVD, and all, a DVD player, and pirated DVDs that they get on the street or whatever. So, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty shocking. And it's, but I, I, they see it as a, as a status, as, a, as an expression of their status and of their aspirations to be able to consume and go to malls. I mean, the tourist never, hardly ever sees a mall, but the mall is as vital, I would say, to life there in some people's lives as it is here. So it's, it's pretty shocking to see, you're right, that this consumer attitude and culture and mindset um, finds a place there and manages to generate and then spread out among other people. Mr. Hernandez, we have a question up here to your right. Um, thank you for 
the talk. It's been enjoyable. I wanted to know if you could, oh, I'm sorry, my name's Kyle Wegner. I want to know if you could speak to um, any dialogue that might be happening between Chicanos and Mexicans mm -hmm. and between cultural producers or anybody else. And if there is one, where it might be going and what mm -hmm. is sort of the discussions going on or where it might be going in the future. That's good. Um, you know, I went in 06 as part of the, um, an L.A. contingency to the Mexico City Book Fair. Um, and I went with, uh, and some of us are actually here who went with, uh, with Pilar Perez, who is a curator here, and, and we took a group. And I remember just being so, um, feeling so good about um, how, how welcoming they were and how curious they were. And, um, and that, I thought that was a big shift. When I first went in 02, um, right after college, people were dismissive to me. People were like, oh, you're not Mexican. You're not really Mexican. Your Spanish is weird. Why do you talk like that? How, do you, how could you not know that word? And now I think people are more like respectful. They have a consciousness. There's a spreading consciousness and an understanding that we exist, that we are a separate thing, um, and we are a product of our history and our geography and, and the language that we're surrounded by. Um, so there's more awareness. And that awareness, like you're saying, I think leads to more connectivity between cultural producers. There's more and more Chicano artists, um, post-Chicano artists from LA who are going down. And uh, you know, the Phantom Sightings show was well received. And this was the show that um, LACMA did. And um, this was about kind of modern, I guess, Chicano art or contemporary Chicano art. And it, it was at the Tamayo, which is a respected institution in Mexico. And uh, it, was, it was well received. People were curious. They wanna, I think they want to more and more understand. And the stylistically, I think, though, is the biggest import and the biggest point of connection. The Cholo Chicano Barrio style. And everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people um, put it on and, and, and wear it. And uh, even if they've never even been, but they had a cousin who went or their dad had, had been. And so, you, you, you know, guys who like had the baggy jeans and the L.A. Dodgers and the hat and the blah, blah. So that, you know, that seeing that rise up, I think that to me is the biggest point of connection between uh, Mexicans and, and Chicanos. Mr. Hernandez, we have a question to your left. Hi, my name is Ana. Hey. And um, I was in Mexico uh, back in March and something that I was really amazed by, empowered by, and I felt really liberated by um, was the public space. So that's the Socalo being a space that's like in the middle of the huge city, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's all this traffic and like hundreds of thousands of people around you. But uh, what was really empowering about public space was that, you know, they allowed for vendors to exist. Mm -hmm. um, they allowed for cultural expression to happen and for public transportation to just be dos pesos and you can get mm -hmm. anywhere around the city was like, really, really cool. So could you talk a little bit more what public space, how, how that affects culture and vice versa and society in general back and forth? Yeah, good question. Okay, it's still really shocking to me. And I still feel, I feel grateful. I really feel grateful to be able to go literally around the corner from my house, go down some steps, pay two pesos, get on the metro and be able to go to the far reaches, well, not the, all the farthest, but to go in mostly most of the city for just that amount. And um, I think they take it for granted. I think they don't understand, you know, from, from coming from here uh, where we lack, where there's so much public, there's so, we, we lack public transportation, we lack public space. Um, 
I think it was when 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 I met you down there. I think it was when we had made that comment, or someone in our in our conversation and said, you know, you can't be in public space in in the U.S. without being a consumer. You have to be at a mall or at a movie theater or at a sporting event to be surrounded by a lot of people. And in Mexico, public space is 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 just that. It's public space. It's everyone's space, and that that includes not only the metro and the public transportation system, but the plazas, like you were saying. And they're not just the Socalo, which is which is a it's, a it's a monumental space. But every neighborhood can't really be a neighborhood unless it has a plaza and a market. And the market is where people from the neighborhood go. And this is a practice that comes from pre-Hispanic times, you know, a market where you go and you can get everything you need for your kitchen. And man, if we had something like that here, LA would be, would be really cool. <laughs> Mr. Hernandez, question to your right. Hi, Hi. Uh, my name is Elena. I actually grew up in Mexico City and I left in 2004. And I wanted to hear um, a little bit more about what you had to say about the drug consumption over there. Because when I lived there, it was very, very looked down upon yeah. among most parts of society. And you talked a little bit about the paint stuff, but I wanted to know if maybe that's changed, if it's more available, if, you know, you're talking about tribalism, if there's certain mm -hmm. drugs associated with certain mm -hmm. youth groups. And mm -hmm. I just want to know how much that's changed in the past, like, five years. Mm -hmm. Well, good question. I mean, I, there is a there is a major cocaine market in Mexico, and I think that's changed and that's been different. And you see it socially consumed um, in places that would surprise you. Um, the drug culture there, though, is seen as it's like I said, social. I mean, it's seen as like, well, if you can handle it and if you can keep it under wraps, and even if maybe your dad's a politician or what, 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 whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter. And I think um, you know, I I would have some moral ambivalence about that. I mean. You know that the, we know that the drug trade has resulted in so many deaths on in, in Mexico, violent deaths, and so many lives, um, you know, messed up on this side of the border. But uh, drug consumption is 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 an issue. Like I said, I mean, marijuana is obviously socially consumed. Um, but like I was saying, and I think New York Times and other outlets have written about the rise of like really addictive and really potent and really um, really dangerous drugs. Um, among certain segments of the population. But you're right, and, and th th there's a really interesting artist named Teresa Margoyes, and she puts that in your face. Right now she is, uh, has the Mexican pavilion at the Venice uh, Biennale, and she is, has put um, drapes soaked in human blood, totally illegal, uh, from, nar from narco, um, narco executions in Culiacán, Sinaloa, where, she's, where she is based. And she had such an intense contact with um, police sources in Culiacán that she's able to get to the sites of executions before sometimes even the police, soak up this blood, find a way to preserve it. And now she is putting that in your face. All these drugs that are consumed in the United States and in Europe, they have real victims. And, um, and they're not just the narcos, um, it's their families, you know, it's people, it's the communities. Um, but we also have to keep in mind that there's an economic element. The Wall Street Journal recently did a profile of Chapo Guzman, who's like the leader of the Sinaloa cartel, this mysterious kind of figure, right? And the article gets into this idea, into this idea that in certain communities, there's such a lack of opportunity um, that it's considered a good thing if the capos come knock on your door and say, we're going to take your son and start training him to be a narco. Like, it, it can actually be considered a good thing. And that shows you just really how, how economically um, it's tied to the way people strategize you know, their survival. I have a question to your left. 
Hi, my name is Francisco. I have a somewhat more lighthearted question. Um, you mentioned a little bit about the tribalism. I'm wondering sort of what happens when youth grow up? Sort of do they, does their tribal grow generationally as yeah. well or do they evolve <laughs> to another tribe? Do they, just wondering if you've That's, experienced any of that. Yeah, um, it's funny. I've met um, guys who, uh, there's Tropo. Some of you have heard of Tropo, the street market where all the youth tribes get together every Saturday and, and they used to trade and barter, but now more consumerist, they sell stuff to each other. Um, and that's where you get your costume. That's where you get set up. You get your studded belt and you get your chain and you get your piercing, you get your pipe, you get whatever you need, right? And so um, when you're younger, I think, uh, what I've noticed, I would say, and I, I, I spend every other weekend there practically. And um, I've interviewed, I don't know how many kids um, but I've also interviewed guys older who say, you know, in the 80s, I was a punk and I was like hardcore and we used to have, we used to get in fights and we were Chavos Banda and we were in the Bandias. But the, 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 the tribal expressions are a little more subdued. You know, it's, they don't find it as necessary to be at the Chobo every weekend and to have a Mohawk, but they'll still have in their domestic spaces, in their private spaces, they'll still have um, icons and expressions of, of their idols and of their bands, and, and uh, you still see older guys with tattoos, or you've even seen, I've even seen goths, like full-scale goths with little kids that they dress as goth, <laughs> like in the black cape, and in that, seriously, it's pretty funny. So I think across the generation, like, there is a, um, people still retain it, but in more subdued tones, subdued manners. Question on the very front here. Hi, my name is uh, Osvaldo, and I, I'm curious about uh, their use of uh, social networks, mm -hmm. um, multimedia, especially youth, as uh, maybe a, a means of survival mm -hmm. during all this chaos, all, this, all these mm -hmm. challenges they face, and if, it, and if there's a sense of tribalism online. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, the, biggest, the biggest social network, um, does anyone know what it is in Mexico? I'm all like in class, high five. <laughs> so uh, high five is completely off the radar in the US and I didn't really figure it out until I got there, but it's way bigger than MySpace and way bigger than Facebook or any other ones. And, high five, and, it's, and it leans young, like it's mostly young. So I, I opened a high five profile and that's where the kids um, make their groups. That, now that's where they make their groups. One of the most recent posts I did just before I came back was on Tectonic, which is like a post-rave kind of techno thing that they're doing in the immigrant suburbs of Paris. And this thing just came out in Paris, just started emerging, percolating in Paris a few years ago. And whereas before, trends would take five, 10 years to reach Mexico, now Tectonic is, there are little tribes of Tectonic in Mexico City already. And I was like, no way, when I saw it, and I went right up to them, you know, took their picture, asked them where they're from, how they were, how they were all kids. How'd you guys meet? High five, MySpace. And that's how we saw it, and that's how we grouped, and that's how they, now there's like little tribes, and they get together and they do like dance-offs. So high five and MySpace still, and Facebook as well, but on a certain, on a, on a different social level, um, helps people produce those groups. We have a question to your far left. I'm a native Chilanga who was, uh, my name's Lise, I'm a native Chilanga who was raised uh, in Riverside, and in return, uh, in trips back to the EFE, I re-familiarized myself with my first home, I've always been really struck by 
how much the revolution is a part of Mexican identity. Mm-hmm. And the big anniversary is coming up. I was there in February, and I know that there's a lot of preparation for it. So I'm you know, wondering your thoughts on that Mexican identity in, in the revolution, yeah. you know, 100 years later. Yeah. I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm nervous. I'm a little nervous. And I think a lot of people are just like a little like, all right, let's see what happens. Because the joke, but it's, it's not a joke. It's a historical fact. Oh, we're on a hundred year cycle. Every hundred years, there's social upheaval. And the independence was in 1810. And the revolution started in 1910. And now we're coming up on 2010. And, and of course, you know, um, the government is preparing a, a, big, a big party, a big celebration. And, and, uh, but, but I think it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You're right. It does The idea of the revolution still is a part of, of identity. And you get you know, taught it since as a, from a very young age in school. And the revolutionary icons are, surround you, right? They're, they're revolutionary heroes have like stations named after them on the metro system, you know? And there are revolutionary dates that have stations named after them on the metro system. So it's like, a, it's, it, it lives around you every day. And we'll see, I mean, but you know, we know the, the fact is the revolution has, has failed us in a lot of ways, you know? And it has for several generations now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm not quite sure. I can't make any predictions, but I can say that the plurality that exists, right, it will, um, will produce, um, some tensions and more tensions. Um, but I also think it will, for most people, it'll probably be just another excuse to have another huge, big, big party. (laughs) So Hernandez, we have a question to you right at the top here. I'm Marshall, and I had a question about the state of inter-ethnic group relations, mm-hmm. um, particularly with the growing number of Central Americans living in Mexico City, mm-hmm. and then at the other end of the economic spectrum, more and more Korean and other foreign businessmen buying factories. Mm-hmm. Good question. I have not had much contact or come across many Central Americans. Um, Koreans, yes. Uh, and uh, Japanese and Chinese. Japanese and Chinese are a little more older. Um, Japanese came um, in, in large groups in like the early, early 20th century. The biggest new group is, is the Korean community. And now there's a little Korea town in the Sonar Rosa section of Mexico City. I personally um, uh, tutor a, a Korean boy in English. So I um, have seen a Korean domestic space in Mexico City. And it's, you know, it's a middle class population. Um, they have... Um, a very insular community, though, as well. I was really shocked because I'm used to Koreatown here, which is like a Korean Oaxacan, you know? And, uh, and you know, we have a lot of different... Uh, Koreatown is really cool because it's so mixed, right? The Korean community in Mexico City is a little bit more closed and insular. And I think that might be a function of um, discrimination and kind of like the the the... the the ethnic racial joking and play that exists so much in Mexico and is, and is tolerated so much. Um, uh, but I don't see really um, much, very much inter-ethnic, um, uh, you know, in, interaction, right? These are smaller communities. The majority of the population is mestizo. Um, but um, it's, an, it's interesting. I, I appreciate it a lot. I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I lived in L.A. I, can, I know what kimchi is and like, you know, be cool with me. But, you know, they're a little more closed off. <laughs> than there. Um, they own a lot of businesses in Tepito and a lot of storefronts, and, they, and they're heavily involved in the um, imp- import 
import business. Um, there's a large Lebanese community, and that's mostly integrated. Um, Carlos Slim is Lebanese, the, the richest man in the world. Um, there's a heavy a Spanish community, and that's a history. That's a historical phenomenon, because um, after the Spanish Civil War, so many exiles were, were brought into Mexico City. I mean, the cool thing about Mexico City is that it's always been a refuge for foreigners um, who, have, who are suffering really severe upheavals in, in their countries. So um, after the Chilean um, situation with Allende and Pinochet, a lot of Chileans came in exile. Friends, uh, recently, a lot of economic refugees came from Argentina, right? Um, so it's always been a refuge for, for um, exiles from other countries, and, and they've been welcomed historically um, by the government. We have a question in the front. Hi, my name is Kathy. Hi. We, um, we live part-time in a small town outside of Mexico City. And in the last couple of years, I've noticed um, more uh, graffiti, mm -hmm. more violence, more crime. And, um, you know, how, I don't, my question is how, it's, I think it's related to the economy going down here. How can Mexico, or can Mexico survive without the U.S.? Without the U.S.? If the U.S., if our economy here is declining yeah. so much, and it's having, we're, we're witnessing the effects yeah. in this town. Yeah. And I'm scared, frankly. We're, yeah. How much worse is it going to get? Yeah. Who knows? I mean, they've, all, they've said it was, was it Porfirio Diaz who's like, you know, so far from God, so close to the U.S. or whatever? Uh, <laughs> And recently it's been, you know, if the U.S. sneezes, Mexico gets the flu. So the, the economic impacts of the shifts and instabilities that occur in this country heavily impact what occurs in Mexico. Um, I think, again, I, don't, I personally don't feel it as much because I think so many people are already, were already unemployed or already participating in the informal economy. Um, the, the stuff that you're talking about, like graffiti and crime and Americanization, I mean, graffiti is an international phenomenon. It, it appears in probably, there's probably tags on the Himalayas. I mean, graffiti is a full spread thing. Um, but, you know, you're right. It does, it is, an, it is a, also a function of um, the loss of economic opportunities. Um, there is uh, um, an Americanization that reaches into the smallest towns and villages. And I don't know where you live, but I mean, I've been to small places and I still am shocked by you know, how American it can feel and how American people's attitudes are and how American people's desires can be. So, we'll, I mean, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, the government, like I said, is, you know, we're going to have a shift and we'll see what kind of, um, what kind of a agenda there will be in, in the next few years in order to stave off any more serious crises. Mr. Hernandez, question to your right at the top here. Hi, my name is Kathy. I wanted to know if you could comment a little bit on gay or transsexual culture in Mexico City. It's huge. <laughs> it's huge. And it's really weird. There's all this ambivalence. Again, you know, there was a study and there was a book, and I'm not quite sure, I can't name it, but um, that, that basically says that um, homosexuality and bisexuality is tolerated as long as it is sort of happens in private spaces. Um, but at the same time, in Mexico City, I see all this freedom, and I see all this um, female couples holding hands and male couples being intimate on the metro. 
And there was actually a program that the, the right now the Mexico City government is leftist. And so the leftist government um, put all their, the metro police officers and security police through sort of sensitivity training. Um, whereas before they might try and break up um, a gay couple from showing affection to one another on the train. Now they're taught basically that this is okay and we need to respect that. Um, there are transgender uh, political candidates um, on several different parties' tickets for the upcoming election. So we will have, we will probably have um, transgender um, politicians in Congress, and we have before. So it's a super interesting thing, and I think like a lot of things in Mexico, there's a lot of contradictions because you can be gay when no one sees, but you can't be out. You know, it's that macho thing, um, and also it's kind of more socially acceptable to be transsexual than it is to be a gay male. So there's some ambivalence. We have a question to your left, Mr. Hernandez. Thank you. Uh, my name is Freddie, and uh, I lived in Guanajuato when I was uh, when I was around 17, 18 years old. And I seem to notice that the, one of the biggest insults there was, or just in all of Mexico, was uh, calling somebody an Indio, yeah, or an Indio patarajadas. Yeah. So it, it seems to me that, and that's just my personal opinion. It has a lot to do with Western culture. Mm-hmm. A lot of people over there are into West, you know, everything that's. American and European, which yeah. is, you know, music celebrityism. And I just want to ask you, how much do you think that, that has to do with it as far as Western culture? You know, when you watch novelas, you most of uh, all the protagonists are, are white or light-skinned Mexicans, and you see a lot of the indigenous-looking Mexicans are mostly servants and mm-hmm. just, you know, stereotypical stuff. I just want to know how much do, of that do you think has to do with Western culture? Totally. It has so much to do with it. It has so much to do with that. Um, it's a colonial legacy, you know, that white, that fair skin is, is socially valued more than brown skin. Um, but I think, you know, that's what, one of the things that, um, okay, we remember when the Mexican government put out a commemorative stamp for Memín Pinguín, and that became a huge issue here among African Americans here, because it was like, wait, no, that's, that is a racist caricature. And people in Mexico were dumbfounded they were completely like befuddled because they're like no it's Mimin Pinguin we grew up with him he's this comic book character you know um and I think that that for me that was an expression of the way Mexicans like if you're like obese if you're fat they call you gordo if you're dark they call you the morenito or the negrito if you're white they call you the huerito and any kind of difference from mestizo from that traditional half Spanish half Indian is something to be mocked but um, at the same time what you're saying does I think does victimize and does create problems and does um, internalize the kind of that that racism and produces in people um, the idea that it is better to be fair-skinned you know deep down it is better you will have more social opportunities you know and if they put out if there's an ad in the newspaper that says you know we need a secretary and if an indigen if a, if an indigena a woman who's brown and has long hair and wears traditional clothing goes she's not going to get the job if like a fair skinned business suit you know what i mean so i think that that you're right it does produce um that that self-inflicted um racism and discrimination and that that malinchismo you know that idea that you know it's cool you know um, to um it's better to be whiter. It's better to be European. But I think, again, people are fighting that and resisting that, and that's changing. And I see now, you know, people are prouder to be, to identify their Indian roots, you know. 
I remember when I wanted to know, well, what are my Indian roots? So asking my parents, well, we're from the north, so we might be Kumeya or we might be Yaki or whatever. So I think you have more and more people um, wanting to celebrate those, their roots and wanting to um, find ways to express them and, and be able to live in, in different and in, and in different cultural, cultural modes, you know? So when people say, Dito, yeah, haha, it's funny, but um, what's really the basis behind that, you know, as you say? Sir Nana's question to your right. This will be the last question of the night. We've run out of time in here, but we certainly invite you to join us at our reception area. I'll be up it's there. Upstairs. Yes, he will. Upstairs, uh, just outside the lobby. And like Mr. Hernandez says, he'll be there where you can chat further with him on tonight's topic. So please join us. Thank you. Hi, my name is Jennifer. And this is kind of a general question, but I'm wondering, uh, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about gender relations mm -hmm. and maybe compare them to, sounds like you spend a lot of time with, with young people, maybe mm -hmm. compare attitudes mm -hmm. of young Mexican men to men, you know, young guys here. Or I'm, to, I'm, to, to young women. Yeah. And, um, like, you know, I don't know. Well, there is that, that legacy of machismo we all, you, that, you know, Mexico is run by men. It's, it's, it's a man, we're manly. We, we were Aztec warriors and then, you know, we were vaqueros and revolutionaries. And, and that um, uh, exists in the home as well. You know, you do, you do hear these really awful stories of domestic violence and uh, the idea that women are, um, are uh, expendable, you know, and, and, uh, and, and a lack of rights for women, a lack of economic opportunities, employment opportunities, educational opportunities. That I think is changing and I think it is because of young people. You know, you go at the universities and um, it's cool to see, you know, I've been to like little organizing meetings and stuff and it's cool to see the women take charge and it's cool to see women, young women and young students be respected by, by their male peers. Um, again, Mexico City is more progressive than the rest of the country so there are um, public service announcements warning people against domestic violence, urging women to exert their rights, their voting rights. Women were given the right to vote not until, I think, 55, in 1955 in Mexico. My dad is Mexican, and I remember his big comment to me when I was young was that women were actually in church, but you just had to make sure that women didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> there is, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course, right? I mean, who runs the domestic space? The woman, the, the woman you know? She runs it. It's true. But, uh, you, you know, you're right. The, 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 the madrecita is that angelic, the ultimately revered icon, more than the flag, more than anything, is, is the mother. Um, and, and that's why it's so rich and interesting, because that ambiguity, you know, the machismo on the outside, but indoors, you know, what mom says goes is... Um, is really expressed here and I think, um, really expressed there and I think really expressed here. But like I said, it's cool. Um, and another cool thing that they're, that they're doing now is um, the front cars of the trains, or sometimes there's women-only buses, you may have read about these, and the front cars of the, of the trains in Mexico City, of the subways, are reserved for women and, and children only. Um, but at the same time, I hear that those are the ones where there's more like pushing and shoving and elbowing. So, I don't know. Anyway, thank you so much. It's been great, thank you.